Maya Angelou once said to Oprah Winfrey, when people show you who they are, believe them. Unless, of course, they are one of the infamous imposters on today's countdown. These people looked and dressed the part of one person, but it was all a lie. From a 17th century princess to a modern-day pretend member of the Rockefeller family, these imposters were daring and creative and almost got away with it. And one person near the top of our list may have pulled off the greatest hoax of all time. Hey all you weirdos, welcome to Crime Countdown, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. Every week we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes, all picked by the Parcast Research Gods. This episode, we're counting down the top 10 most infamous imposters. So the first thing that came to mind when I heard, you know, imposters or infamous imposters especially, was that movie with Leo. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio, ever heard of him? It was Catch Me If You Can. It is Remember that one? always on Bravo. I've seen it is. I've You're never right. seen the movie the whole way through, but I've seen clips and like bits and pieces simply from it being on Bravo. There all the you time. go. I went and saw it in the theaters. I think I saw it like near my birthday or something. I can't really remember. Oh, but did you? Yeah. And it's um the movie's based off of a true story. It's Frank a big nail. And just watching that movie and reading up on the actual story behind it, it's amazing what he was able to con himself into, the positions he was able to con himself into. Yeah. I'm going to stop there because I don't want to give away anything because, like, I don't know. I don't know, guys. But I'm just saying, that's the first thing that came to my mind, probably because of that movie. But it's wild. I see what you did there. I'm I'm expecting to hear that name again. (laughs) But right now, of course, hearing imposter made me think of Anna Delvey. Of course. I didn't even think of that one. And I didn't see her on my side of the list. So I feel like you have to have her somewhere on your list because that girl is the talk of the town lately. Yeah, it's, you know, like these imposters are now getting entire Netflix shows about them, which is interesting. Who would have known? Yeah, I feel like it all started with Catfish. It did. You're right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I have number one today, and it's a story that most of you guys probably know. I was, like, actually pretty young when all the drama went down regarding the story, but it's one of those things that's cemented in my brain. Like, I can picture where I was when all of everything happened, so it'll be interesting to break down. You know what? I genuinely don't have an idea of what your number one is. I was just trying to be like, oh, yeah, I totally know which one it is. I no. don't. It's either genuinely going to be a surprise to me or I'm going to be like, oh, why did I forget that one? I think it might be the latter, to be honest. That's how this whole thing works, guys. Elena has five infamous imposters, and so do I. But neither of us knows who's on the other one's list. Let's start the countdown. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. I'll start us off with number 10, Millie Vanilli. I knew he was going to be on here somewhere. I love that you said he. That's my favorite part about this. Whoops. I also very, I can't believe I didn't think of Millie Vanilli. German music producer Frank Farian had already put lip-syncing performers in his groups instead of actual singers. But when his group Millie Vanilli became a worldwide sensation, that move came back to bite him. Uh-oh. You're a child of the almost late 90s, so don't worry. It's okay. I'm like the late 90s, yeah, essentially. In the late 1980s, Frank Farian set out to produce a Eurodance version of the song by Newmark's Girl You Know It's True. He had a feeling it could be a hit. Sounds like a hit. He was right. But instead of having the singers of the track perform, he hired two male dancers who were living in Munich, Rob Pilatus and Fab Morvan. Rob and Fab were offered $4,000 each to become the faces of the group Millie Vanilli. The pair were a hit, and they were, let me tell you. They toured in the U.S. with Paula Abdul and oh, other yeah. popular artists before their album debuted in 1989. But the lip syncing was kept a secret. So secret that vocals for the album were recorded late at night in a hidden studio. I love, like, the secretiveness of this all. This is very salacious. It is. As Rob and Fab toured, they were questioned about their accents because Rob spoke German and Fab spoke French. They stopped giving interviews. (laughs) They were like, "Mm, bye. Because if you listen to the music, a lot of times you can't, which is, so it is a little like, "Mm." a lot of times you can't hear an accent when someone sings. But I think with this one, it was like very different. And they were like, that's wild. I feel like we would pick up on that. At a performance in July of 1989, in front of thousands of people, Rob and Fab fled the stage after the audio with their vocal track crashed mid-show. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah, it's, it was kind of like an Ashley Simpson yes. scenario. See, now you're speaking I was going to say, I can bring this to something you'll understand. I remember that. In 1990, Millie Vanilli won a Grammy Award for Best New Artist. With all of this success, Rob and Fab pushed Frank to let them do their own singing on the new album because they wanted to earn it. Yeah. Frank responded by outing the pair to reporters as lip syncers. I'd be like, but you're the one who started this all. You made us do that. Well, the fallout was harsh. Their label dropped them and their Grammy Award was revoked, something that had never happened before. The pair were humiliated. Rob later suffered from addiction and died of an accidental drug overdose in 1998. Fab later said of the experience, quote, 
We were victims of our dreams of stardom, chewed up and spit out by the record industry machine. Oh, that's so sad. I loved Millie Vanilli when I was little. Me too. That like, girl, you know it's true. Yeah. But I also, knowing what happened later. It's like haunting. And like the the fact that it was like, it was always used as kind of a punchline. Like you were just like, if you were, you know, doing karaoke or like not singing something, somebody would be like, oh, Millie Vanilli over there, you know, like. Right. It was a joke and it still like kind of is a joke. Like people will say it still. But knowing like the real human fallout and like humiliation that happened behind it is yeah. really sad. The it's aftermath. Like, now you hear it and you're like, oh, that's that's not funny. No, <laughs> I agree with you. Yeah, I, I was a little too young to remember you any were. of this, but I tried to make it seem like I remembered it. That's okay. I was like, I remember. You know what? Blame it on the rain. It's okay. I will. Is that Millie Vanilli <laughs> as well? I blame it on the rain. Blame it on the rain. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Are you allowed to do that? Stop right there. Nine. At number nine is the Tichborne Claimant. In 1854, Roger Tichborne was on a cargo ship that got lost at sea. All passengers were assumed to be dead. Eleven years later, a man from Australia said he was Roger Tichborne and that the ship had actually landed there. Hmm. Curious. Very curious. Roger Tichborne's mother never lost hope that her son was still alive. She published ads in Australian newspapers offering a reward in return for information. A butcher from Australia claimed to be Roger, but his appearance was confusing. He was heavy set and didn't speak any French. Roger had been slim and fluent in French, so hmm. check that off as a no, I feel. <laughs> but despite that, quote unquote Roger was brought to England in 1866 and reunited with the Tichborne family. He also got access to the family's money, which was substantial. There it is. Yeah, right there. After Roger's mother died in 1868, still believing the man from Australia was her son, other members of the Tichborne family started speaking out about doubts as to Roger's identity. They hired an investigator who identified the man as Arthur Orton. He was born in London, but moved to Australia. Arthur slash Roger, meanwhile, was trying to get access to the family's estate. So the family took him to court in a civil trial to try to block this. It became a trial over Roger's real identity and ended up being one of the longest trials in English history. Then perjury charges led to another trial, this time in criminal court. During that trial in 1874, Orton was convicted and sentenced to 14 years of hard labor. He served 10 years before being released. 10 years of hard labor. That's a lot. I don't even want to do one year of hard labor. No, no thanks. Orton reportedly confessed in 1895 to being an imposter, but he quickly took it back. He died in 1898, still saying that he was Roger Tichborne. I think he was an imposter. I'm willing to bet. Yeah, I feel good about saying that. That's like a really messed up one. There's a lot yeah, of layers there. That really is. Like you're you're confusing a mom who lost her son just to get her money. That's yeah. really messed up of you. And she died still thinking that was her son. Yeah. I, in a way, I'm like kind of happy that she had some, comfort of yeah. some sort. But then she probably found out that it was all a lie. That's a hard one. Yeah. Layered. That's a hard one. Eight. 
Number eight on our countdown of infamous imposters is Anna Delvey. Anna Delvey pretended to be a German heiress with a trust fund worth 60 million euros. With that identity, Anna conned friends and business associates into supporting her heiress lifestyle until she was forced to pay up. Anna Delvey was born Anna Sorokin near Moscow in 1991. She started using the last name Delvey after moving to Paris and then New York City in 2014. She looked and acted like an heiress, dressing in designer clothes, staying at high-end hotels, and tipping with $100 bills. But at the same time, she ran up lines of credit at hotels and promised wire transfers of payment later. She also asked friends to charge things like dinner and drinks and then never paid them back. That's a fake friend. That is a fake friend. In one of her bigger scams, she convinced a young architect that she was planning to open a private members club. The project would cost around $40 million. She's like, yeah, yeah, I'm good for it. How do you just get someone to believe that? It's wild. The manipulation tactics that she must have in her body are insane. High level. Yeah. Wild. In order to get loans for the project, she forged financial statements and made up an accountant whose email was traced back to her own. But none of her finances checked out and eventually... Eventually, the building owner and architect abandoned the project. Anna still went after funding and convinced City National Bank to give her a line of credit for $100,000. She used much of the money on expensive clothes and hotel stays. Girl, what are you doing? I like how instead of like trying to pay the things that she was like ringing up for debt, she right. was like, I'm just going to buy more clothes and hotel stays. Seriously. In 2017, Anna was arrested in a sting operation by New York police. She was charged with defrauding multiple businesses and individuals of more than $200,000. Following a 2019 trial, Anna was convicted of eight charges, including second-degree grand larceny, first-degree attempted grand larceny, and theft of services. She was sentenced to 4 to 12 years in prison, fined $24,000, and made to pay restitution to her victims. After serving nearly four years, she was released. At number seven this week is Ferdinand de Mara. Ferdinand de Mara took on multiple identities as a supposed doctor, surgeon, prison warden, zoologist, and law student. He managed to successfully perform surgeries while posing as a doctor in the Canadian Navy. But that success is what eventually blew his cover. Ferdinand joined the U.S. Army in 1941, but then he fled and stole a friend's identity to cover his tracks. He then joined the Navy and used forged college documents in order to enter their medical school. When the forgery was uncovered, Ferdinand went on the run again. The next year, he assumed the identity of a former Navy officer and psychologist and began teaching at a college. Wow. Just like telling you everything he knows. Yeah. He managed to teach for three years before his past caught up with him, and he was charged with deserting the army. He was sentenced to six years in prison, but was out after 18 months. And at that point, Ferdinand forged a PhD and started referring to himself as a doctor. The scheme got him a teaching job at a college in Maine, where he connected with an actual doctor named Joseph Sear from Canada. This happens so easily, it feels like. People just forge documents and get, like, high-end jobs. Seriously. I'm like, what is going on? Is is administration okay? Like, is all are all administrators all right? 
Like, everyone's just missing this paperwork completely. Clerical errors, I feel. All over the place. Come on. Now, Ferdinand offered to help Joseph with immigration paperwork. But then, he took Joseph's identity and became a medical officer in Canada's Navy. Jeez. While stationed off the coast of Korea, Ferdinand, as Joseph, performed multiple surgeries, including the successful extraction of a bullet from a soldier's chest. Now, keep in mind, he had basically no medical training. That's actually very impressive. I'm like, (laughs) maybe you should go to school and then you can, like, you already have great instincts there so train those instincts and you'll be amazing that's the thing i'm like just get get the schooling behind it and then you'll actually be able to do this right and you could be an amazing doctor if you can do that already with nothing now a story about ferdinand or joseph sear as he was calling himself was published alongside a picture the real dr joseph sear's mother saw the story in her local canadian paper and alerted the authorities straight away oh my god i love that his mom was the one that was like, like the real Dr. Joseph Sears mom was like, that is not my boy. Right. And then just called and was like, that is not my boy. That's mom stuff right there. Seriously. She was probably like, you have the wrong picture. Yeah. She's like, you know what? My boy is beautiful. What are you doing? Right. A mother always knows. She does. Well, Canada had him deported to the U.S. in 1951. Ferdinand landed in Life magazine with a feature on his latest scam. But by 1955, he had taken a new identity as a prison warden. A copy of the magazine with him in it eventually made its way into the prison, and Ferdinand was forced to flee again. Man. He was caught in 1957 and served a six-month sentence. Eventually, he died in 1982 at the age of 60 of a heart attack. That's actually not surprising, considering the stress he was probably under. Oh, yeah. Trying to keep up. And he wasn't just keeping up identities of, like... Oh, I'm just Joe Sear. Right. I'm an accountant who lives down the street. He's like, I'm a medical officer who performs life-saving surgeries in the Canadian military. With no training. I'm a a prison warden? Like, what? I'm a zoologist. Six. Also on our list at number six is George Salmanazar. George Salmanazar was born in France in the late 17th century. Later on in life, he appeared in England claiming to be a native of Formosa, which is present-day Taiwan. As the first native of Formosa to visit Europe, George became a sort of ambassador of the island. He wrote a hit book, A Description of Formosa, where he goes in depth into supposed life on the island. Here are some of the highlights. Natives of the island tended to eat raw meat. 18,000 young boys were killed in a ritualistic sacrifice annually. The island was cannibalistic. Men would eat wives who had been left or women who had perceived to have sinned. Okay. (laughs) In 2014, The Atlantic described George as sounding, quote, like an anthropology major tripping on peyote. What a description. <laughs> Whoever wrote that should have gotten a raise. Yeah, I hope they did. An anthropology major tripping on peyote. It does sound like that to me. I love it. George and his book were a hit in high society England, and he was invited to speak at dinners and parties. The highlight would be him speaking Formosan, which turned out to be his version of gibberish. Wow. But it must have been convincing. It must have been, but my goodness, how offensive. Incredibly. 
The Bishop of London sent George to teach the Formosan language to students at a religious college so they could travel to Formosa as missionaries. Ooh, I bet that's where things started going downhill for George. But George's critics started to publicly question his story. There it is. In 1710, George's supporters published a pamphlet called An Inquiry into the Objections Against George Salmanazar of Formosa, which addressed the critics. By this point, though, he had become sort of a laughingstock of society. His book was debunked from the Formosan language he made up to the cannibalism, so none of it was right. George spent the rest of his life making ends meet by writing. He left a manuscript of his autobiography to be published after his death. But even that was sparse on details, including where exactly he was born. Ooh, weird. Which is a big part of your autobiography, I feel like. Usually is. The thing is... That sounds like a really cool book, so just write a fictional book about that. Exactly. Like, don't actually say that people are really doing this yeah. in this land, you know? Like, write a story. Yeah. A fiction story. It sounds like you're a very talented writer, George, but a liar. Wow. I, it's, Anna, the Anna Delvery one always blows my mind just because she was able to just get things done with no money. Seriously. And just the constant anxiety. Like if I ever owe somebody money, even if it's like you grabbed me a coffee, I'm like, I need to get you back yeah. right away. I'm like, how did she not have more anxiety about owing people that much money? Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Seriously. It's insane. It's the manipulation thing for me with these that I'm seeing. And I feel like it's going to get worse and worse as we go to the bottom of the countdown here that like the manipulation tactics are something that everyday people can't understand mm -hmm, because we can't comprehend how to do that kind of thing. That's exactly what it is. Which is good. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. On behalf of ParCast, I'd like to thank you for your continued support. Your loyalty has allowed us to keep expanding even beyond podcasts. That's why I'm so thrilled to share some special news with you all, something we've never done before and made possible only because of you. On July 12th, we're releasing our first book titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can pre-order it today at parcast.com slash cults. Those of you who've been with ParCast since the beginning know that it's a labor of love for us to bring you these powerful stories. As long as you keep listening, we keep creating. So with the benefit of years of research and insights, we've put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. You won't want to miss this book. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults. Thank you again for listening. We can't wait for you to dive in. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
five. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of infamous imposters. Starting off the second half of our list is Frederick Bourdine. Frederick Bourdine spent his early years bouncing between different homes and juvenile centers. Each time he ran away and was caught, he'd pretend to be a different person. In 1997, he tried his most daring scam yet by pretending to be the missing American boy, Nicholas Barclay. In June of 1994, teenager Nicholas Barclay went missing. A missing persons report was filed, but unfortunately didn't lead anywhere. A few years later in Europe, Frederick Bourdine apparently heard the story of Nicholas's disappearance. He dyed his hair blonde and got a tattoo to match Nicholas. Stop. Yeah, when you said we were going to get darker, I was like, oh, wow. just wait. In 1997, Frederick was 23 years old and said to be living in a youth home in Spain. Posing as the youth home director, he called the National Center for Missing Stop. and Exploited Children and suggested that Nicholas was there. Nicholas's half-sister came to Spain to confirm his identity. She hugged him and swore under oath that Frederick was Nicholas. Wow. So, quote-unquote Nicholas, was given a U.S. passport and flown back to reunite with his family who welcomed him home. Most of them initially seemed to accept him as the real Nicholas. But what was weird, Nicholas's eyes were blue and Frederick's were brown. So he claimed that his pupils were injected with chemicals by the people that had trafficked him. Wow. Can you imagine? Well, and you know what it is, too? First of all, that family just wants him home. So you're, so willing, you're willing to accept. to believe a lot of things, I imagine. Absolutely. Because I think it's just like the desperation of, I want my child, I want my brother, right. my friend home. And just the disbelief that anybody would ever do this to you. Well, the, exactly. And that anyone would go so far as to get the same tattoo. I would never question that. When I read that part, I was like, that is pure psychosis right yeah, there. Yeah, like I would never, ever for one second be like, well, they have the same tattoo, but do you think he could have just went out and got that to make it look like he was... That just wouldn't cross my... I'd be like, no one would do that. Right. And then this poor family when, I'm, you know, they do find out, spoiler alert. Yeah. I would never trust anybody ever again. And now he's claiming to be trafficked and saying they did something that heinous. Of course you're going to believe him. Exactly. Uh, you know who didn't believe him, though? I have, an, I have an idea. The FBI. Yeah. They had their doubts about Nicholas's true identity. Nicholas claimed to be a victim of sex trafficking, but the FBI found little evidence supporting that. And they noticed that his hair was dyed blonde and had dark roots growing in. That was one of the things I was going to ask about, because I was like, you know hair grows, right? Oh, yeah. And as a platinum blonde who is uh, not naturally a platinum blonde, yeah. those roots grow in like pretty of quickly. Course. You're not going to be able to dye your hair every time. And I'm like, you didn't really prepare for that? Okay. So the FBI got warrants for blood samples and DNA from Frederick and Nicholas's mother. The testing proved that Nicholas was actually Frederick. Mm -hmm. In September of 1998, Frederick pled guilty to obtaining and possessing false documents and perjury and was sentenced to six years in prison. He eventually moved back to France. The case of Nicholas Barclay's disappearance remains unsolved. That's so sad. And what was the motive there? That, well, that's the thing. I'm like, why would you do this? That was like so far to go. And that family already went through so much trauma. And then to add that on top of what they've already been through, then they're it's like they're grieving him all over again. And they don't get their child back, but you get to go off and get married and have a kid and pretend it never happened. What? I don't know how you could look at yourself in the mirror after that. Number 
four. Landing at number four this week is Princess Caribou. In 1817, a woman in her mid-twenties was found wandering around a town near Bristol, England. She spoke an unrecognizable language and called herself Caribou. So who was she? I don't know. Who was she, Ash? I don't know. When Caribou was found, she had a small pack of essential items, like soap on her. People offered her food and housing while they figure out who she was and where she came from. Caribou had some strange habits. She prayed on the roof of the home she stayed in and slept on the floor. She would only eat vegetables and tea. Okay, so she was a vegetarian who enjoyed sunshine on the roof and needed a harder mattress. I don't know about the sunshine on the roof. It was in Bristol, England. Okay, well, leave me alone. (laughs) Leave me alone. (laughs) Word began to spread about the attractive new foreigner in town. Ten days into her stay, Caribou was introduced to a Portuguese sailor who claimed to understand her language. Mm. After talking to Caribou, he reported that she was a princess from an island in the Indian Ocean. I'm not so sure. She had been kidnapped by pirates and escaped by jumping into the channel near the town and swimming to shore. This sounds like an epic fantasy novel. Very much does. Princess Caribou's story made its way around the region and she became a small-scale celebrity. A painting of her was commissioned, and a ball was held in her honor. Oh, Why don't no. we do that more? Hold no. balls in people's just honor. Just hold balls in Seriously. people's honor. I think everybody should just have a birthday ball. A birthday ball. I love that. Soon the press were writing about Caribou as well, but a landlady in Bristol saw an article about her and claimed she had given her lodging six months prior. <laughs> so, eh. oops. The landlady confronted Princess Caribou, who broke character and was able to speak English perfectly. Come on, girl. Princess Caribou turned out to be Mary Wilcox, the daughter of a cobbler from Devonshire. She had apparently made the whole story up in order to seem more interesting. That's really sad, to be honest. It is. Mary capitalized on her fame years later and charged visitors to a London gallery to see her. She died in 1864 at age 75. Okay, so here's the thing. I'm cool with this one because she didn't hurt anybody. She just wanted to have a little fun. I mean, it was, what, you said the 1800s? Oh, yeah. What else was she going to do, really? It was like 1817. I mean, I probably would have done this just for something to do. Just for S's and G's. Yeah. I kind of love it. Don't hate this one. Sounds like a hot ticket. Princess Caribou for life. Rock on. Number three on our countdown of infamous imposters is Victor Lustig. The facts of Victor Lustig's life are hard to come by. That's because he spent the majority of it scamming using multiple identities. His biggest scam was auctioning off Paris's Eiffel Tower for scrap metal. Not once but twice. Victor was born in an Austrian-Hungarian town in 1890. He started stealing and pickpocketing from a young age, and he was apparently especially good with a deck of cards, which helped him with gambling and street hustling. When he arrived in the U.S. after World War I, Victor peddled something he called the Romanian money box. The box supposedly copied banknotes using radium. Note, 
it was a scam. It was? It was. In 1925, he went off to Paris with a plan. He sent letters using fake stationery imitating the official French government seal and invited leaders from the scrap metal industry to a meeting in a high-end hotel. I love how he just, like, orchestrated this whole thing, like, no big deal. And he just, like, had to have sat there and been like, oh, what can what can I do here? You know what? I'll auction off the Eiffel Tower. That sounds fun metal. today. I think that's something that I can get done, and it's easy money. And like, imagine— what, How is that? What? Imagine if he actually was able to go further with this, too. Yeah. The spoiler alert, obviously not. <laughs> yeah, like, in case you guys didn't know. <laughs> it still stands. <laughs> So at the meeting, he pretended to be in the French government. The Eiffel Tower was to be torn down, he said, because of, quote, engineering faults, costly repairs, and political problems I cannot discuss. Ooh, very hush-hush. Secretive. The winning bidder apparently gave Victor $70,000 in cash. But by the time he realized it was a scam, Victor had already fled. The bidder was said to have kept the story a secret out of shame. Oh, no. I do feel bad. Probably for the best. Months later, he carried out the exact same scam. This time, the winning bidder went to police. Victor had already fled back to the U.S. and started counterfeiting money. In 1935, he was arrested and charged for counterfeiting. After escaping and being recaptured, Victor became sick in prison. But apparently nobody believed he was sick because of his history of scams. Oh no, he's the boy who cried wolf. He is, because he eventually died in prison of pneumonia in 1947. Oh no, Victor. I know, that's a little bit sad, but I mean, that's why you don't lie. The Boy Who Cried Wolf is a life lesson. It's true. Victor, to me, that is a scam unlike any scam. I know. Because it's just, he shot for the moon and stars with that one. He was like the top of the Eiffel Tower. You know what? Let me try to sell off the Eiffel Tower for scrap metal. I'm also like, did he not like the Eiffel Tower for some reason? Was he like TO'd about it? Yeah, like what? Did he have like a bad romantic moment underneath the Eiffel Tower? He tried to kiss somebody and he got, he got noped. Yeah, like maybe. And he was like, we got to tear this down. Maybe. Oh, maybe he like went in for the kiss and then like she turned her face and was like, no, just the cheek only. That's what happened. He was like, rip this thing down. Get it out of here. Sell it for scrap. I don't know. I think that's exactly what happened. I think we just figured it out. Case closed. (laughs) I'm excited to crack these next two cases. Well, this next one's going to be familiar to you. So get ready. I think I have a feeling. Yeah. Okay. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.
We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of infamous imposters. At number two is Frank Abagnale Jr. Frank Abagnale is perhaps best known for being portrayed by Leonardo DiCaprio in Steven Spielberg's film Catch Me If You Can. As a teenager, he flew around the world writing bad checks while pretending to be a Pan Am pilot, a scam that eventually landed him in prison. But got a great movie out of it. Sure did. Following his parents' divorce when he was a teenager, Frank tried to drum up ways to make quick and easy money. He thought it would be easy to cash back checks if he had a flashy persona, so he decided to pose as a pilot. Okay. At the time, Frank was around 18 years old, but he told people he was in his late 20s. His uniform came from the same manufacturer that made those for Pan Am. He got it by convincing an employee to sell it to him. <laughs> like, I feel like somebody might have been intimidated into that. Also, again, impressive that he was able to do that. Over the next few years, Frank said he flew an estimated 3 million miles by posing as a pilot in need of a ride to another airport. Wow. He would also cash bad checks at airports along the way. He's claimed he cashed over $2.5 million across 26 countries over the course of five years. This was all before he reached the age of 22, by the way. Wow. Also, what was he spending that money on? I know. When he saw the FBI had a warrant out for his arrest, he decided to uh, retire from airlines. I'm screaming. He's like, yeah, I'm just, you know, retiring early. 22. Yeah, you know. I've seen the world. I've literally seen the world. He moved to Atlanta, where he reportedly posed as a pediatrician. So he's really going for it. Also concerning. Very concerning. But he eventually landed in prison for forgery. After being sentenced to 12 years in prison, Frank was released on parole after five years. In a surprising, or unsurprising, twist, a 2021 book by science journalist Alan C. Logan called The Greatest Hoax on Earth suggests that most of Frank's story about the airline fraud is a hoax. It was, like, a a little bit much. It was pretty intense. The book argues that Frank was actually in prison during much of the time he claimed to be passing himself off as a pilot and a pediatrician. Frank told reporters who asked for a comment after the release of Logan's book, quote, I have not read the book, nor do I think it is worthy of a comment. Ooh. Reading is fundamental, Frank. I know, like, ooh, Frank. I think... That would be strange to be uh, a con man who's pretending to be a con man by conning man. I don't know. That's the thing with like conning is it involves so much lying that it's hard to like, because you see like, you know, former criminals will like come back around and then like lecture and tell people like their experiences. And that's like a really good thing to do because it's like someone standing there that's turned their life around. Growth. But in those situations, you can see the growth and you can believe the growth. In this, you're like, but your whole thing was based off lying and conning. Are you lying and conning me right now? Right. One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 infamous imposters, Christian Gearhart's writer. Oh. Yeah, right? Yeah, I didn't, I know this one, but I did not think of it. Well, you might know him by a different name. Mm-hmm. 
Christian was born in West Germany, but he was obsessed with the U.S. from a young age. When he was on a train in Germany, he met an American backpacker who offered him a place to stay in Connecticut if he ever came to visit. So Christian took him up on the offer and then moved to San Marino outside of Los Angeles after a few months. And how many people will do that? Like you'll meet someone and you're like, you know what? If you ever need a place to stay when you're in this place, oh, like man. look me up. And this guy did that. For and real. You know that guy was probably like, oh man. I didn't mean it. <laughs> man, I was just trying to be nice. Using a different last name, Christian moved into the guest house of Didi Sohas. Didi's son and his wife were also living with her. In 1985, the couple disappeared shortly after Christian arrived. They had planned a trip to New York, but weeks went by with no word from them. The couple's friend called police after she got a call from the place that was boarding their cats. Which is so sad because you're like thinking about those cats missing their mom and dad. Oh, no, that is sad. When the police came to Didi's house for a welfare check, Didi said that Christian had been in touch with the couple and that they were fine. But five months later, Christian disappeared with the couple's truck. Didi filed a missing persons report after that, but the case went cold for two decades. He eventually reappeared in New York City, where he pretended to be a part of the legendary Rockefeller family. The quote-unquote family connection led him into finance work, where he met his wife, Sandra Boss. Sandra and Christian were married and had a daughter together. But after a decade of marriage, Sandra filed for divorce, won custody of her daughter, and moved with her to London. So you have to wonder what was going on, that they she got full custody and immediately just dipped and went just as far as she could. Left the country. Like, what happened? Yeah. So during a visit with his daughter in 2008, Christian kidnapped her, a move that would end up exposing the massive scam that he had been living. The kidnapping set off a manhunt for Christian, with his picture appearing everywhere. People called the police and gave information on his multiple identities. Back in California, Dee Dee's house was sold shortly after her death in 1988. New owners started renovations in 1994 and found skeletal remains in the backyard that later turned out to be from Dee Dee's son, John. The police also located the couple's truck in Connecticut. It had a new owner, Christopher Crow, but they couldn't find him because he had become a Rockefeller, and so that lead went cold. Christian Rockefeller was eventually caught in 2008, living in Baltimore under a different name, and his daughter was returned to her mother, luckily. When Christian was fingerprinted, police connected him to the owner of the truck who was wanted for the murder of a couple back in California. He was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison for the kidnapping in 2009. In 2013, he was convicted with murdering John Sohus and sentenced to 27 years to life in prison. He didn't just like fraud and lie and con he also murdered yeah that's wild and kidnapped kidnapped murdered frauded conned lied and who knows what else who knows what else yeah this man is scum yeah true scum i remember that story and i i don't know why i didn't think of it i did not see that coming at number one but it yeah. It's one of those things that when you hear it, you're like, of course. Of course. Why did I not think of that? <laughs> yes. Yeah, he is definitely number one. I'm going to have to agree with the podcast research gods. Yeah, every time you add in, like, murder to it, yeah, that's a real infamous imposter, I would say. Definitely. Imposter. Honestly, they're just, like, pretending to be a human yeah. at that point. They're yeah. an imposter to the human race because it's like, what are you? LARPing as a human. Exactly. Exactly. 
I can't think of anything that was left off, but I'm sure there's more of these situations. I'm sure there are. And if I, because I can't believe I didn't think of like Anna Delbry. I didn't think of Millie Vanilli. Like they're right. For some reason, they don't stick in my mind. But when I hear them, I'm like, oh, yeah, that one. You're like, oh, I see. So I'm sure there's more. But you know what? Podcast research gods, I think you got all the ones that I was thinking and wasn't thinking. Same here. Good job. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week. You can find all episodes of Crime Countdown and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, which I hope you do because you made it this far, you can listen to Morbid anywhere that you listen to podcasts or you can follow us on Twitter at AmorbidPodcast or on Instagram at MorbidPodcast. And we hope you keep it weird until Monday. Crime Countdown is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It was created by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo, with associate sound design by Jamie Ryan. Fact-checking by Lori Siegel. Research by Jay Cahio. It's produced by John Cohen, Kristen Acevedo, Gemma Waters, Jonathan Ratliff, and Tracy Levy. It's associate produced by Gitu Mera, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Elena Urquhart and Ash Kelly. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. Exciting news. Parcast's first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, is now available for pre-order at parcast.com slash cults. Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before. Details which haven't even been explored in our Cults podcast. Visit parcast.com cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them.